Well, good morning. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful that we can utter those words to you, Jesus. God, our Father, we've been brought into your family because of your Son, not because of our works. It's the works of our hands that put us out of your family, Father. Thank you for Jesus. I pray that we would let go of the pride that our works give us so that we could hold on to all that Jesus promises for us who love you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Question for you. What is a best man, a garter toss, and a pinky promise all have in common? All of those things are things that we call traditions. They're all things that are done, that we know that they're done. Those of us that have gotten married have done those things. Those of us that have found ourselves trying to convince somebody that what we were trying to say is true have found ourselves do, doing those same things as well. But that all of those are traditions. Traditions are merely things that have been passed down to ensure that something is protected or kept safe. Right? Traditions are a gift because what takes place is that uh, it helps us when we face a certain problem, each person doesn't have to try to find out how do I solve this problem. Puts us one step ahead. There's things that are very, very clear for us. The funny thing about traditions is this. Most of us do them, but we don't know where they come from. So we spend all of our time trying to make sure that we nail these things down, but we have no clue why they're there. Do you know where the best man came from? So the best man uh, was actually your best swordsman. And he would stand right next to you in case stuff got real at the wedding and somebody stepped up. <laughs> Some of y'all wouldn't made the cut for best man if that was still it. The garter toss. Do you know where that came from? People thought that after the wedding, if you got a piece of the bride's dress, it was good luck. So what took place is to prevent a bride from being mauled as she left, they said, hey, we're going to take this piece of her dress and throw that out, and y'all can have that. Uh, pinky promise started in Japan. And what took place was you did the shake, and if you lied, what it meant was that somebody could cut off and have your pinky. Really. Traditions... They're not just things that people come up with in a room by themselves. They have a real purpose to try to help us solve a very, very real problem. That's the gift of it. But here's the curse. The curse is that traditions are often practiced, but 
they're not really probed, right? We do all of those things, but we don't know why it is that we, we do those things. And the danger is when a tradition becomes a rule. A tradition was never meant to lead the way. It was just meant to serve the, serve the way, serve this end goal. When a tradition be, becomes a rule, what takes place is the purpose of the tradition gets lost. It's funny because the thing that made me want to become a pastor was not me living my life and seeing people outside of the church that were on their way to hell. The thing that made me want to become a pastor was seeing the people that were inside of the church on their way to hell. The people who had come into church and embraced all these religious traditions and they thought that they were safe. And so this concept of these religious traditions that are often practiced and we make sure that we do all of these right things but really don't keep us safe at the end of the day, it's such a danger because when these things start to lead the way, what takes place is it mutes God's voice. It makes things that God did not say seem as if he said those things. And it makes things that God actually said be muted. And if God is the one that speaks these words of life, it's important that we listen. If we don't hear what he says, or we decrease what he says, or increase what he did not say, then all that that means for us is sudden death. So I've titled this sermon, Losing My Religion. Religion in the concept of this. That word means binding back relationship to God. As we go through this text, I'm going to use the word religion in the sense of the person that thinks there's a distance between me and God and there is something that I have to do and work for. Religion in the context of works that try to get us back to God. So if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 7, Jesus comes face to face with a group of folks that fall into the same thing. They're trusting in these religious traditions. And he's trying to help them see that at the end of the day, what they really need to do is in order to embrace their Savior, they need to lose their religion. The very first point that's made here in the text is this. Religion doesn't protect the truth. It often perverts the truth. It doesn't fix the problems that it tries to fix. It merely tends to create new ones. Mark 7 verse 1 starts off and it says this. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they did not eat un unless they washed. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with the filed hands? Here's what goes on here. The Jews had very strict uh, practices on things that they could eat or could not eat that God outlined in the Old Testament that would make them clean or unclean. So you have a group of people that know there is a distance in between me and God. Now this group of folks, the Pharisees, they take it upon themselves to define how somebody finds themselves back in relationship with God. They take God's word and they say this. All right, God told us not to do this. God said not to eat this or we would be unclean. So in order for us to help out God, let's build a fence around what God said not to do because if folks don't go past the fence, then they won't get to God's law. And so there was a tradition that was built in to help people Right? Not break God's law, but this tradition only ended up causing more problems. Because this tradition that was meant to serve and meant to help became this rule. So much so that these men come to Jesus and what they say is, hey, there are people that are rolling with you that are doing things that make them unclean. Why do you let them do things that make them unclean. And in their attempt to fix, look at how Jesus responds to their religion or trying to get back in God's sight. Verse 6, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8 and 9, he goes on and says this. You leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of man. And he said, you have a fine way of, listen, rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. So it's a group of folks that say that they're here to fix, to help folks see how do I get back close with God and Jesus comes in and says, first of all, y'all talk about tradition of men. Jesus comes with God's word. So what he says is this, if we're going to talk about what pleases God, let's start with what God has to say. Let's not leave God out of this. Let's not put God's word on the ground and let us define what God says in his word. But let's let God's word stand on top of us and judge us. And it's a very interesting thing that he says. Most of us, when we think of rejecting God's word, we think of bad deeds that we've done. What Jesus is trying to bring out here is that there's two ways to reject God's word. One is by very, very bad deeds. And one is by keeping deeds, thinking that these deeds make you better in God's sight. There's a group that has to repent of their sin, but this is a group that has to repent of their righteousness or their goodness. Their religion, it it doesn't fix any problems. It creates a brand new one. In trying to help God, all that they've done is mess things up all the more. 
picture you being at home and you have a three-year-old and they say, Mom and Dad, I want to cook you breakfast. So they go into the kitchen and they take all this stuff that really doesn't mess and they create this whole mess and then they serve you this, this peanut butter and ketchup sandwich that's laced with flour. You come in and what you say is, you tried to help, but really you just added a new problem. I can't eat that and I've got to go up and fix this mess. As Jesus talks to them, he's saying, yo, y'all think that you're trying to help, but at the end of the day, all that you've done is create this new problem. And the problem that they created was this. They're granting people a clear conscience without a clean heart. And that's dangerous. Look here at verse, verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother what Ever you would have gained from me as Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Little context. This concept of Corbin was this deferred gift. It was you saying, all right, there's things that I have and the things that, that I have, I vow them to, to God. So it's like this will, right? Where God's going to get all of my stuff when I die. And because I vowed this to God, what that means is that I don't really have to use it in a specific way here on earth because it's, it's vowed to God. And so what took place at this time where you had people who, based on God's word, had a responsibility to take care of their mothers and fathers. But what took place was they used this religion or this tradition as a loophole. If, if I say that it all belongs to God, then what that means is that when my mom and my dad need stuff, I really don't have to give it to them because it belongs to God. And so what they did was they... They spiritualized away their neglect of very practical needs. And this is what religion tends to do. Religion, or the, the mindset that we can work our way back to God, has at its heart that we serve a God that has a high standard and grades on a curve. So it's all about effort. It's all about hard work. It's all about the things that I do. Christianity is not about a God with a high standard that grades on a curve. It's about a God with an impossible standard that gives no leeway. And so at the end of the day, there's not anything that you can do. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5, and he just goes on and on and gives... Uh, examples of the way that people have twisted God's word to be able to do what, what, uh, what they want. So things like this. How many of y'all have heard the statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? 
That comes from the Bible. That's God's law. Man, who has in his heart that he wants to get vengeance, treated that as if God commanded that. If you poke out my eye, then I have to poke out your eye. Or it's my right to poke out your eye. But Jesus in Matthew 5 says, no, 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 no. God put that in place not to command vengeance, but to limit it. To make sure that if you get your eye poked out, your heart is going to want to hurt them. Make sure that you don't take their life. But on and on and on, what takes place is you have a group of folks that takes God's word. And because they can't meet his impossible standard, the least that they can do is clear their conscience. And feel okay with the things that they do. And here's why being why somebody feeling accepted in the sight of God based on their works is so dangerous. Because at the end of the day, like I said, it clears your conscience, but it doesn't clean your heart. Proverbs 30.12 says this, There is a, a man, or there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but they are not washed of their filth. It's like somebody that is in a burning house and the fire alarms go off and they take out the fire alarms and think that things are all good because there's not noise. The only thing that you've done is removed the very thing that alerts you to the fact that there is a problem. To clear your conscience without cleaning your heart, it doesn't change where you stand in the sight of God. The only thing that it does is it removes the very thing that God placed in our heart to tell us that we are still far from him. And Jesus looks at this group of guys that are preaching that you just have to try harder. And he's saying, you didn't just take the smoke alarm out of your house, but you're telling the rest of the world that the way to stop your house from burning down is taking smoke alarms out of their houses. And so you have a community of folks that feel safe because they always find themselves in God's presence, but they're never really in relationship with him because they still have a dirty heart. Religion, this concept of I can get to God based on my works, it doesn't protect God's truth. It only perverts it. It doesn't fix any problems. It only creates new ones. So Jesus goes on here in verse 14. He really helps us see, all right, what lies at the heart? There's so many folks that practice these traditions, but at the end of the day, they don't poke holes in it and find out why. What, like, why is religion so wrong? And it's because of this. Religion focuses on the symptoms of the problem and not the source of the problem. It's concerned with externals as if that's the main thing. Verse 14, it says this, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, listen, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. His main point is your problem is not external. 
it's internal. For a community of folks that worked so hard to make sure that they ate the right things and they didn't eat the wrong things, he's saying your main problem is not what goes in, your problem is what goes out. He goes on to expound in 18, he says this, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he made all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Religion, this concept of thinking that I can work to get to, to, to God, its main problem is that it misdiagnoses the problem. And if you get the problem wrong, your solution is always going to be wrong. It looks at trying to treat the symptoms it gives cough drops to people that have lung cancer. And when they stop coughing, it tells them, you're okay. So Jesus comes in and what he says is this, listen, your body is just a pipeline. Stuff that goes in comes out. Unless you're on this side of 30, stuff that goes in, it stays in your hips and your thighs and not all of it comes out. But he says stuff... Stuff comes in and it goes out. What he says is this. When he says that, there's a group of folks that have spent their whole life working so hard to make sure that they keep the bad stuff out. And in their mind, it's free. In their mind, they're like, the biggest problem that I had, trying to make sure that I keep all the bad stuff out, Jesus says, it doesn't matter. And so it's them thinking, we're free. But then it goes on because at the end of the day, removing your biggest problem is not the same thing at, as arriving at a solution. Jesus only removes the problem of religion because it distracts them from seeing what's really wrong with them. It's like somebody that has lung cancer and it's been treated by cough drops their whole life and they've been told, take it on and on and on for somebody to say, hey, you don't have to take these cough drops anymore. And, and, and they'd say, yes, I'm healed. And it's, no, I didn't say that. You don't have to take these cough drops anymore because they're distracting you. Your problem is not your symptoms. Your problem is is the source, is your heart. There's not just an itch that you have to scratch. Jesus is saying, you need surgery. Everything that we do is tainted. It doesn't matter what ingredients come in because of this heart that we have, everything's going to come out tainted. It's like if you have a kid that has a peanut allergy, and there's pans that have been cooked uh, on with, 
peanut oil and somebody cooks foods and they don't put peanuts into the food and, and they say, well, it's safe because there's just good stuff that went in, you would say, it's not safe. Everything that comes out of that pan is going to be tainted. The problem is not the stuff on the outside. The problem is what's inside the pan. And people can wash out a pan by our hard works. You and I can't wash out the inside of our hearts. Jesus removes the external to tell us that our real problem is what goes on inside of our hearts. And two things take place here. If there's really an internal problem that none of us can affect that keeps us from God, the very first thing is that it puts us all on the same page. All of our hearts in here are made of the same stuff. Right? Effort can be judged or changed. Your hearts can't. We're all on the same page, which means that we all have this same hopelessness. It's not a God with a high standard that grades on a curve. He's a God with a perfect standard that doesn't let any sin slide. And he looks at our heart. And so what takes place is is it causes us to look inside. If at the end of the day you think your main problem is external, then I'll describe to you what your Christian life looks like. Trying to stay away from bad things. Trying to stay away from bad people. Trying to make sure that you don't catch what they have. And then when you do sin or when you fall, there's always an external reason as to why. There's always somebody else to blame. There's a circumstance that made you go in a particular direction. Jesus says here, your main problem is not external, it's internal. And there is not a circumstance that's possible that can free people from these things. Look at all of the things that he says here. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft. People that are poor steal. They, all right, I say this not to say that all poor folks steal, but if somebody that's poor steals, there's a justification. I stole because I didn't have. If I just had, then I wouldn't steal. But do you know what? People that are rich steal. And they have. Adultery. There are some folks that will say, well, I did this because my wife let herself go and she wasn't in shape and all of this stuff. But then there are people with the most gorgeous wives who find themselves in that same boat. Envy. People that are without say, well, I really want it because I just don't have. But then there are people that have that still find themselves in that same boat. There is no circumstance that cleanses us from sin. And here's the crazy thing. If I were to sit right now and ask you, 
What's the biggest problem in your life right now? What is the one thing in your life that if God stepped in and he changed it, life would be good, life would be great for you? These are the things that we pray about. Or if you're not a Christian, these are the things that you daydream about. Daydreams are the prayers of those that don't believe that there is a God. What's that one thing that if it changed, life would be better? If you didn't say my heart, you think that something external is your problem. If you didn't say the thing that I need changed most is a heart that's not just a victim of crimes that go on out there, right? So what the Bible reveals is that we're slaves to sin. You and I can't help but to sin. But it's not just that we're victims. Because what takes place in our lives is we're willing slaves. We sin at times because we want to. We're not forced. We want to. And that just that helps us see, listen, if I'm just trying to treat the symptoms, then all I may get is a clear conscience, but I may have a dirty heart. And Jesus is going after people that are religious, that have all these traditions, that have a clear conscience, but are on their way to hell. And what he says is, listen, a clear conscience does not mean a clean heart, because all of our hearts are corrupted, and no one can get inside and fix what goes on in the heart. There's no circumstance that can change it. So what's our hope? The only hope that we have is Jesus, and that we serve a God who cleans up what Religion can only call out. Religion does a great job of saying this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Jesus comes in and what he says is, yes, it's wrong, but not for the reason that you thought. And it's worse than you thought, but I can clean it up. Look here at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know Yet he could not be hidden. First thing here, Tyre and Sidon was the lawless capital of the world at this time. So the Jews looked at this and, and they said, those people are the most lawless that we know. Jesus walks into the town and once again, look, he's trying to keep himself hidden because he's not after fame. But it says that as he comes in there, he couldn't keep himself hidden. Hidden. Just a side note. This is the beauty of Christ. Jesus is so full of grace and compassion and works that even when he finds himself in a context where he's trying to keep himself hidden, there's a group of folks that find themselves so in need of what he has that they flock to him. He can't hide. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says the same thing about a church that does what it should do, that looks like what it should look like, that this city on a hill can't be hidden. That if this church is really full of Christians that are Christ-like, then what takes place is you put them in a context and there is no PR campaign that takes place. But there's a group of folks that say, I need what they have. What they have exudes and it can't be hidden. 
verse 25 says this, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. First thing that I know I have to get out of the way so that we can spend time on the rest of this. Why does Jesus call this woman a dog? Right? Jesus is not insulting her. In this day and age, dog was a term that was used for Gentiles or those that were outside of God's kingdom. A, 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 a stray dog was used as a, a picture of somebody that was unclean or had no place, right? Dogs would go at this time and they'd lick sores of folks that were dead. Um, Jesus just uses this term and the word that he uses for dog here is not stray dog, but in the sense of a family dog that's a part of the family. And, and I know y'all are like, well, that's not better. He still called her a dog. <laughs> well, what, what he, he'll use this term just to talk about priority. Jesus came and his priority or the first group that he preached to was Israelites, God's people that he chose to be a display of his greatness. His aim was always to preach to the world, but there was this order. The Israelites, those who had God's law, those that, that were in church, those that, that, that did all of the right things at the end of the day, they were the ones that killed Christ and put him on the cross. And, and here's the beauty of what Christ does. Jesus goes to a place that the religious would avoid. He engages a person that the religious would condemn. You have this lady in an unclean city. She's an unclean lady with an unclean daughter who has an unclean spirit inside of her. And it's this context, it is against this backdrop that Jesus reveals his power to cleanse the most unclean things about us. So that nobody would leave from here and think we're made clean by the law and the things that we do. No! Jesus cleans up what religion can only call out. The point of this story was Jesus is going into the worst of the worst place. And the person that receives true purity and being cleansed is not the person that works the hardest. It's the person that has an acknowledgement of the fact that they're unclean in God's sight. It's a person that knows that their problem goes down so deep that they can't fix it or change it. And it's the person that comes to Jesus and doesn't lay out their works. But they come to Jesus and they worship. 
They acknowledge him for who he is. And they acknowledge themselves for what they are. And they cry out and say, help me. Only you can clean me. And the response in verse 29 is this. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed. And the demon was gone. For people that serve a God with a high standard that grades on a curve, they can take care of every problem that they have in their life with their works and with effort. But for people that know that there is a holy God with a perfect standard that doesn't let sin slide, the acknowledgement that they have is I don't need a new scenario. I need a savior, somebody to clean my heart. And I just want you all to know that we serve a God that does that. Jesus went to the cross for that reason. To take your place. And so what we're going to do at the end of our time is we're going to have four people that are a part of this church, ironically, who all grew up in church and thought that they were safe. And there was a time where the fire alarm went off God exposed the depths of their sin. And instead of them trying to fix things themselves, they cried out for a savior. Somebody to clean up what religion could only call out. And Jesus saved. And he does it every time. And as they proclaim their stories in baptism, our prayer is that those that are in here that have trusted in their works so long would let go of it all and be reminded of the fact that we serve a gracious God that cleans the depths of our hearts and changes us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful. We are grateful for the work that you've done in our lives, Father. There's some of us that you've saved from very gross and outright sins that led us on a path where we were near death and it was there that you saved us, Father. But then there's those of us in this room who lived a life where we thought that we were good. We had no clue in our mind that we were on our way to hell. But you exposed our dirt. You exposed our heart, not to condemn us, but to clean us, Father. I pray that we would be ever grateful for all the work that you've done in our lives, Father. I pray that we would shout from the mountaintops that we know a God that cleans hearts. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.